Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, March the 4th, 2022. The news, of course, today is dominated by the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. But there is other news, fortunately, I guess, although it's not necessarily particularly cheerful either. Uh, the case against Trump and, January, and the January 6th panel continues uh, to play out. Lots of debate, lots of complexity on that one. Um, lots of divisions as well. Uh, I found a piece in the Times this morning about a division between a son and a father on the a Jan 6 trial in terms of accountability uh, and the law. Uh, certainly, there are many people who believe that Trump knew he'd lost the election, that the election was actually fair and that the American electoral system worked, but he wasn't telling the truth for one political reason or another. Of course, the Republican Party in particular is deeply divided, just as that father and son were divided about January 6th. The, um, the RNC, the Republicans, are deeply divided on uh, not only January 6th, but the legality and the legitimacy of the election outcome last year. Uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinziger are the two Republican politicians who have come to represent, I guess, the the symbols of resistance against Trump and belief in the uh, legality of the system. Um, and uh, this seems to be playing out as well in some criticism of Cheney and Kiss uh, Kinzinger over the Ukrainian crisis. It, it's all promising to be a remarkably passionate, divisive, and I guess interesting primary season. Um, the real issue is not just the legitimacy of the January 6th political discourse, but the truth about the electoral system. Um, does it work? Is it legitimate? And it's not just Cheney and um, Kinzinger, Republicans who are um, in support of the system. Uh, there are a number of other Republicans uh, who are telling, at least in their view, the truth about uh, not just the legitimacy of the system, but the voting rights legislation and issues in American politics. I've got two guests on my show today, both Republicans, both former electoral officials, and both quite critical, I think, of mainstream Republicans, both very much in defense of the Amer American electoral system. The first is Bauke Vu. He is um, a former election official from Georgia. He's talking to me from Atlanta. Uh, and uh, as I said, he, uh, Bauke, is the author of, uh, or the co-author, shall we say, of an interesting uh, Newsweek piece, which I cited earlier, uh, in defense of the American voting rights issue. Uh, Bauke, I apologize for my rather long-winded introduction, but you and your fellow guest Al Schmidt are on the show as Republicans in defense of the system. Uh, perhaps you might talk a little bit about your concerns with 
much of the Republican discourse about the American voting system, voting rights, and January 6th. Sure, and uh, and thanks, Al and um, Andrew. Nice, well, first of all, Al, nice to see you again. And Andrew, thanks for having me on here. Uh, well, I tell you, let me start by saying that uh, while we may carry the Republican Party hat uh, at times, but uh, I speak today as really an American, uh, an American who was born and raised in Vietnam, having lived in Australia, and uh, having witnessed the death of democracy in South Vietnam over 45 years ago. So I think it's, um, you know, I'm here because I want to share this along with the thoughts of Al to, our, to, to the viewers, because this truly is an ongoing assault on democracy, I believe. Um, it's, uh, it's frightening. And, uh, and for an eternal optimist like me, uh, it's tough to actually uh, see it happen in real time uh, in the United States. I mean, I, frankly, I never thought I'd actually see it here in the United States. Balki, so, um, I want to bring Alan in a minute, but perhaps you might separate all the issues that I introduced your show with. The issue over January 6th, the issue over voting rights, the issue of the legitimacy of the November election last year, uh, uh, actually the year before. Which, um, which issues are you most concerned with? Yeah, and, and, you know, it's all kind of interconnected, but I will start by saying that uh, based on my experience as, a, a, as at one time a vice chair of a large county's board of elections, uh, but then also having my wife, my other half in the household, who actually was uh, a, a staff member of uh, former, well, now Governor Brian Kemp, but she was actually a staff member uh, when he was Secretary of State, and so she was actually helping to run elections at the state level. We know the process that takes place. We know the laws and regulations in place that creates these checks and balances in order to ensure the safety and legitimacy of the elections. So from a systems process standpoint, um, there was you know, and you've heard it many times already. You've heard it from Bill Barr, you, former Attorney General. You've heard it from uh, Homeland Security officials. There was no widespread fraud at this level. Say it again, Balky. Say it loud and clear as a Republican. Go on. <laughs> there, there, there was no widespread fraud anywhere. And, and so as, a, as someone who inside the household, we talk about elections a lot and seeing yeah. it. Uh, you know, how much of a minority? Basis, I, I want to bring in Al in a second, but how much of a minority do you believe you are within the Republican Party? For example, the Republican Party of Georgia, which was, of course, in the eye of the storm in the November election. Well, you know, uh, in Georgia, and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, along with uh, certainly the Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who's not running for re-election. They've been adamant and forceful in, in repelling against these accusations that have been propagated. Uh, they've refused to uh, pander to the pressures. Uh, and obviously, at times, we all go through this and we're all- but You're not answering my question, Balki. I, I take the fact, we all know that there were leaders within the Republican Party that were critical. But what about the rank and file? the members of the party in, 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 in Georgia. 
How would it break down in, in your mind in terms of who believes that the election was fair or not? Oh, yeah. Now, that's become a min uh, minority. Obviously, why? Because uh, those who are reasonable either voted Democratic or have switched parties. Uh, and to the other extent, it's a you're a Republican, that, though. So uh, you're saying it's unreasonable to vote for the Republicans. <laughs> let's 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 bring in Al. Al, um, Al uh, Schmidt, you again are a, a former election official from Pennsylvania, talking to me from just outside Philadelphia. Uh, both of you are former election officials because, uh, I, I mean, have you been thrown out of your party, Al? Uh, uh, you were a, a target, uh, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, of, uh, of Trump's attacks. You're resigning. Is that a, a euphemism for being thrown out, being driven out? No, really not at all. I was elected in 2011 as city commissioner of Philadelphia to run elections in the city, re-elected in 15, re-elected in 19. I just made the decision well before the 2020 election that I would uh, not run for re-election again. I just ended up leaving a little bit earlier than I expected to take a different opportunity, heading up a nonprofit called the Committee of 70 here in Philadelphia. But if, uh, and, and, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, if what Balki is saying is true, if the majority of the rank and file Republicans believe that the election was fixed and you don't, why not just change parties? Well, I was a Republican long before Donald Trump was a Republican. When we're talking about these attacks on election uh, uh, integrity, we're talking about these attacks on confidence in democracy. Those might change my opinion of the majority of the Republican Party, but it doesn't change my position or outlook on on other matters. Um, so I didn't I wasn't chased out in any way. In fact, I had two years left to serve on my um, my elected term um, and left of my own choosing. And if I had decided to run again, I'm confident with truth on your side uh, that ultimately you'll be, you know, you'll win. I mentioned Cheney and Kinzinger earlier. They, of course, are the best known figures taking on Trump within the party. How much of a bloodbath, Al, do you think it's going to be? Um, particularly during the primaries, in terms of these two wings of the party? I don't know. And I think you're asking an important question here because, you know, 2020 is a long time ago, or at least it feels like a long time ago, despite the fact that we keep talking about it. But we're coming up on the primaries that are the first federal and state primaries since 2020. Other than New Jersey and Virginia, I think, Pretty much every other state had municipal and other elections in uh, 2021. So 2022 is, I think, when we'll really start to see the uh, uh, the fallout from 2020, because all of those elected officials at the uh, federal and state level are coming up for re-election or running for election. Let's come back, uh, Bauke. Um, you. Um... As I mentioned, you co-authored a really interesting piece um, in Newsweek entitled uh, We Are Republican and Democratic Officials, Voting Rights Are a Bipartisan Issue. You argue in, um, in the piece that voting rights do not have to be so hard for so many Americans. We would know. We both served as election officials. 
And although we're from different political parties, states and corners of the country, we both strongly agree that voting is a fundamental right for all Americans, one that must be preserved and protected. I'm assuming that kind of goes without saying. And then you go on to say um, uh, that we are witnessing, unfortunately, are witnessing an alarming trend in the opposite direction. In 2021, 400 bills that restrict access to voting have been introduced in 49 states. Are most of those bills Republican bills, Bauke? We're losing uh, Bauke. We're not hearing you. Perhaps uh, Donald Trump somehow cutting your sound off here. Still not hearing you. Perhaps um, while you fix your sound, we'll um, let's uh, let's bring in Al. Al, do you want to have a shot at that in terms of these these bills? What's going on here? Are these mostly sponsored by Republicans? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they they clearly are, and there's a real kind of cyclical nature to, or circular nature to a lot of this. You have a number of Republican elected officials lying about the integrity of the 2020 election to voters, those voters who are normal people with normal lives and a lot going on are believing what they're hearing and being told. And then they demand that those same election elected officials do something about it. And then those elected officials say, what am I going to do? Of course I have to, you know, pass these or try to pass these laws. And they are allegedly to increase, uh, election integrity. But that's not necessarily the consequence. It's in many cases attempting to solve a problem that didn't occur uh, to begin with. And the consequence of it is it makes it in some cases uh, harder for voters to vote. We got um, we got Bauke back, I hope now with some sound. Um, but let's see. Uh, Bauke, um, how much of this and, and and you touch on this in, in your interesting piece in Newsweek. How much of this is rooted in your support of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act? How much of our, um, how much of American, the future of American democracy is dependent on this Voting Rights Act? Yeah, Bauke, we're still not hearing you. I think we're going to have to bring uh, Al back in as the only man in the Republican Party with a voice. Al. <laughs> Uh, talk to me about the John Lewis Voting yeah. Rights Act. Why is it so important? I mean, again, I'm putting words into your mouth because Bauke wrote that piece, but I, my sense yeah. is you're pretty much on the same page. As there, yeah, and there are aspects of it that are very important, and there are aspects of it that would greatly improve elections across the country. Since it's federal legislation, it requires that there be a certain level of access in every state across the country. Uh, and a couple other things so that we all, you know, to some degree, um, there's there's like that same level and it's uniform in that in that respect. As you know, every election in uh, in our country is run at the state level. And in most states, it's then devolved to the county level in Pennsylvania. Philadelphia runs the election in Philadelphia. It's not the state of Pennsylvania. So. One aspect of that bill was it would bring, bring a degree of uniformity, especially when it comes to voters having access. 
So why? So, so and, and and excuse the naivety of this question. Now, why why is this so controversial? It seems as as you're presenting it as a Republican, as a complete no brainer. Um, a, a bill which gives voters um, a, a better shot at voting. Why? Who would be against this? And what is the real agenda here, in your sense? Well, I I worked on Capitol Hill for a number of years for the Government Accountability Office. And, you know, it's no secret that that bills also may have a lot of very good things, but they also sometimes have a whole lot of other stuff in there, too. So one arguably legitimate objection to the bill would be that the bill includes a whole bunch of other stuff that are not common denominators that Republicans want and Democrats want and all the rest. I think another sort of knee-jerk reaction opposing the bill is that because elections in our country are devolved to the state and that most states then devolve them to the county, it's it's sort of opponents are trying to frame it really as a as a power grab by the federal government over elections in the country, when really it's a matter of common denominators. You're presenting it as a very... Um reasonable disagreement, but others have suggested that race may be involved here. Um, I read an interesting piece in the Brennan Center for Justice about debunking false claims about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. John Lewis himself, of course, is a major figure in the history of American civil rights. I had actually Michael Waldman, uh, the head of the Brennan Center, on the show recently talking about the fight to vote. And suggesting that some of the criticism of the uh, of the um, the Lewis Act may be racist. Um, uh, Balki, I hope you've got your voice back. Uh, Can you hear me? Can you oh, hear good, me? We've got you. Well, you're, you're back, and you're you're now uh, you're now uh, fully hearable. Um, what's your take, Balki, on the suggestions that? some of the opposition to the John Lewis Voting Act may have racist undertones, connotations. Yeah, you know, I think it's always problematic when we go down that path. Uh, I will say that in the state of Georgia, uh, if you look back in the last 15 years from the two Secretary of States ago, Karen Handel, from that moment forward, they were trying to bring the voting elections process into the 21st century. Because when you think about it, you've got advancements in the world of technology and information delivery. And there was no sense that, especially after the, the 2000 hanging chads um, uh, you know, down in Florida, that, uh, that, that we were you know, moving forward. Uh, now, I, now the, the opponents of the John Lewis Voting Act, they're talking about a number of issues, as Al mentioned to you, where at the uh, state level and the county level, it's tougher for them to adjudicate. And I understand that. Uh, What I thought was uh, paramount also was the fact that I didn't want elections integrity, quote unquote, elections integrity bills that were uh, premised on a false big lie to drive us down a path of, you know, various state legislations that could lead to many other unintended consequences, uh, especially when we have to be able to adapt. Uh, and the, the irony is that um, it's actually Republicans in the state of Georgia whom in the last 15 years did do a lot to improve the process of elections. And now they were basically going backwards or trying to, you know, 
fix. Uh, so you're saying, Balki, you're, you're suggesting that there really isn't a um, a racist or a, a racial element to this. Many African Americans would disagree. I had Martha S. Jones on the show last year, written a wonderful book about the struggle for black women to vote. Carol Anderson as well. I think they would, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think they would both suggest, particularly Carol, that the critique of the um, the Lewis Act has racist connotations, not amongst everyone, but amongst quite a significant amount of its critics. Would you disagree with that? Yeah, I would. With in terms of the perception, then I see obviously they're trying to make a case on the perception. But at our level, then it's very much a uh, a technological slash. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not saying. Also, but right? my, my point is, is that the the thinking behind it is designed to restrict African Americans to vote. Would you disagree with that? Yeah, you know, um, again, it's such a if it's the impact on African-Americans, but I think it impacts everybody when you try to make things more difficult. So I don't think, I don't think it has to be- Al, would you agree with Bauke here that there really isn't a racial component to the, the attacks on the John Lewis Act? Well, you're speaking to the motive of people who oppose the bill. And I would not know what the motive is of the people who oppose the bill. What I was trying to say is that it's a big bill with a whole lot of stuff in it. And when you have a big bill with a whole lot of stuff in it, um, it is um, uh, sort of more problematic. What the impact is, just like Balki said, what the impact is, is there are aspects of it that could make it harder for people, um, uh, that make it harder for, that are, that it's harder for people to vote now and aspects of this bill that would improve it. I think that's- Yeah, I guess you're both, what, what's surprising to me is that you're both presenting this as kind of politics as normal. Well, it's a big bill. There are bits in it that people don't like. So it's perfectly legitimate to hold up this bill. What you're ignoring is the enormous political sensitivities and controversies. And you both put your careers on the line for this. So it's not like you're shy on this stuff. Why won't you speak more openly? Or perhaps uh, you yourselves are undecided on this. Well, for one thing, um, and I keep repeating this, it's a big bill. And if you want to go through individual... Yeah, I know you've made that bill, point, Al. I know it's a big bill. Of granularity. The other thing Green is... bills are big. I mean, that's yeah. the nature of politics. It, it is indeed. And you're asking, is it good or bad? And there's good in it, and there's bad in it. But I would also add, there is no one on Capitol Hill that thinks that bill is going to pass. Yeah. So we're talking about a bill that's essentially already dead. Regardless of its merits regardless of it, its ability to improve access to the ballot box for voters and to make it more uniform across the country, to eliminate a lot of the confusion about how is it done here? How is it done there? It's harder to vote in one state. It's easier to vote in another state when we're all Americans, all voting in the same election. At the end of the day, to my knowledge, no one actually expects that bill to pass. I am speaking with Al Schmidt and Bauke Vu, uh, two former Republican um, electoral officials, one in Georgia, one in Pennsylvania. We can take a short break, uh, Alan Bauke. And afterwards, I want to talk more broadly. I want to step back from the voting rights bill and the issues and talk about the future broadly, intellectually and politically of the Republican Party. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Al Schmidt 
and Balkivu. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenan. We are back with two rather brave uh, Republican former electoral officials, former being the key word here, Balki Vu from Georgia and Al Schmidt from Pennsylvania. We talked in the first half about the Voting Rights Act, of whether uh, our two guests believe they're racist. They're not entirely convinced or perhaps convincing on that, but they're certainly quite critical. I want to step back a little bit, guys, and talk about the future of the Republican Party. Two of my favorite intellectual Republicans are Jonathan Rauch and Peter Weiner. They've both been on the show. Uh, and a couple of months ago, uh, they had an interesting piece in the New York Times entitled, they co-authored it, what's happening on the left is no excuse for what's happening on the right. They're concerned about the future of the Republican Party in terms of its commitment to democracy. Uh, I'm not sure which of you wants to take that first, but do you share Rausch and Weiner's concern? Who wants to take that one? I'll... Uh... I'll take a, a shot at it first, if that's okay. Of course. Um, wow. On the first part, you know, you, you asked Belki and you asked me about the majority of Republicans. And clearly what we see right now are a, uh, what seem to be a majority of Republicans, a majority of members of one party who do not have confidence in the electoral process. That is not based on anything in actual reality related to election administration or weaknesses when it comes to election integrity. Uh, it's a matter of consuming political propaganda and being fooled by it. Where's that propaganda coming from, Al? From Republican elected officials, from the Republican Party. So former colleagues of yours? Yeah, which I, who I disagree with. 
when it comes so to you, so you would share uh, Roush and Weiner's concern about the anti-democratic tendencies within at least part of the Republican Party. Yeah, there, there is clearly an interest in winning at all costs, and I I was never a Boy Scout, so I'm sorry to sound like one, but uh, winning isn't everything, and there are clearly people who want their candidate and party to win at all costs, regardless of the cost that has to um, to our electoral process and the damage it does to democracy. One area where people are unanimous is when you look at election administrators across the country, Democrats and Republicans, we all agree that the election was free and fair and safe and secure, whether you're in Pennsylvania or Georgia or Michigan or Arizona. Republicans and Democrats have stood up for the integrity of that election because it's based in reality. They are closer to it. They know what occurred and they know how fantastical and absurd all these allegations are that have no basis in fact whatsoever. Um, Bauke, uh, last week I had the um, Venezuelan political scientist Moises Naim on the show. He's written a wonderful new book, The Revenge of Power, in which he talks about the the new authoritarianism around the world, whether it's in Hungary or China or Russia or Turkey or the Philippines or indeed America. Um, Naeem puts Trump and many of his supporters within the Republican Party in this new cult of power and embrace of authoritarianism. Would you do the same? Absolutely. Um, and I think you have to look back at the long arc of history and say that, look, you know, frame in the context of the last 30 or 40 years, you've seen enormous uh, technological and society changes throughout the world uh, that uh, that at one point brought prosperity uh, and brought opportunity to many other countries. But over time, as we get into uh, obviously the mechanics of global trade and global politics, then it's always going to create these fractions that rub against one another. So that's what I believe that we are going through is, and that's what's given rise to this. Uh, I, I don't get the connection, Bauke, between what um, changes in global trade and a turn away from democracy. How are those connected? Yes. So when you think about it, uh, in the in the initial stages of globalization, then you had a lot of countries coming out, and, and for the first time, with trade barriers being dropped. Uh, also, with the, uh, the 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 ending of the Cold War, those actually went hand in hand in terms of creating opportunities. In this current iteration, then you have the dissonance because of what? Because that there's a there's a class that has felt like they have been left out, and so that class has now, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're angry, they're frustrated with what's taking on in their neighborhoods, their communities, and their country, and they're they're basically. Uh, frustrated, and they're looking for solutions. They don't know how to get it. So the okay, next step, I, I get, take that, and that's not an unusual yeah, view. So they feel they've been left out of the system, which yeah, is yeah. often a phenomenon in politics. But why turn against the democratic system itself? Yeah, because for them, they, they're so frustrated. And when they hear the voices of those who are making these easy promises to them that somehow I alone can fix it, then they want to buy into that. Now, you know, obviously, right now, what many of these strongmen type leaders have done over the course of the last five, 10, 15 years is the fact that they've 
elevated stupidity as a governing philosophy <laughs> in their respective countries, right? And and with the with the freely exchangeable, uh, uh, you know, informational exchange of the internet, it makes it extremely easy to have millions and millions of people who may not have the same type of um, uh, information and, and knowledge that we have. It's easy for them to pick up and buy into these ideas and become completely vaccinated from the truth. I mean, the irony well, is... Let, 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 me, um, let me bring Al back in. I, I take your point, Valky, but um, there are many Republicans, uh, Al, who are doing okay in this. Not every Republican who's against the democratic system or at least challenging the legitimacy of the system is unemployed or impoverished or starving. Um, so isn't it more than just not understanding the, archi the new architecture of, of globalized economics that's behind this turn away from democracy within a significant, perhaps minority, perhaps majority in the Republican Party? Well, like most, I think, big movements going on in in history, uh, it's probably multi-causal and it's not one thing or another. Um, but one thing is um, clear in this case is that it took hold and it took hold right now in the Republican Party. Maybe it's an aspect of that's central to the ideology of the Republican Party and campaigning and all the rest to say, you know, government's incompetent, government's no good, everything government touches is rotten, it's all crooked, and, and making, bringing elections and the administration of elections, which are done by government agencies, whether they are at the municipal level or the state level, kind of into that argument that here we have government again, government's crooked, government's no good, government screws everything up. So that might explain it a little bit. The big danger that I want to raise to you, Andrew, is that once Republicans begin winning again, and they will, we only have a two-party system, and that's for sure, is what a danger it is to not just have a majority of one party have these anti, embrace these anti-democratic um, kind of uh, this outlook and what happens when the same thing happens to Democrats, which I do not think is out of the realm of possibility. And then and then things really fall apart. Well, you don't. No, just I, I agree. I, I think it. I agree. And actually, I was going to bring that up. We had um, Michael Kazin on the show this week asking the question of whether the Democrat, he's a left wing Democrat, whether the Democrats have a future. He just come up with a book, What It Took to Win. A history of the Democratic Party, which is very nostalgic. And I think if there is to be violence, and we've talked a lot about potential civil war in America, it's just as likely to come from the left as the right. What happens if 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 that occurs, Al? Well, if if the majority of both parties, and therefore a majority of Americans for the most part, embrace these anti-democratic um this anti-democratic outlook, then that's a real danger because Democracy has within itself um, the mechanism for its own destruction, its own dismantlement. When anti, when people get elected who want to prevent voters from casting their votes, some voters from casting their votes, when they want to sort of tear down confidence in the democratic process, 
then I think that opens the door to all sorts of other really big problems that we would face should that occur. And I hope it doesn't. I want to end with both of your visions of uh, the Republican Party. Perhaps begin with you, Al. Where should the Republican Party go if it wants to innovate, if it wants to reinvent itself in the first quarter or half of the 21st century? Well, I think we are clearly in the midst of a significant political realignment right now. I mean, in Philadelphia, Donald Trump did better in 2016 than Romney or McCain had done. And Donald Trump did better in 2020 than he did in 16. And that is in a big democratic city. So the appeal, that populist appeal, because it's really about populism, it's not about ideology, it's about populism, is I think from, um, is, is, is crossing, you know, crossing parties to independents and to Democrats. Right. So, Harm, we've had this conversation many times on the show, explicitly or implicitly. How do, how do the Republicans, or for the Democrats for that matter, how do they tap this new populism without destroying the political system, without calling into question the very legitimacy of the political system? Well, I'm glad you've talked about it a lot, and I hope you found some answers to it, because that's the real... Yeah, you're the expert. You're, you're the expert. <laughs> I, I'm just asking the questions. Balki and I are experts in uh, election <laughs> administration, uh, even though I would like to think that we're both fairly thoughtful people, and I have a PhD in political history, so it's not like I don't right. think... So you, you, you get it, Al, and it's perhaps one of the reasons why you can't answer, because there is no answer. Right, and, and, and how do you... You're saying, like, basically, how do you embrace it, and at the same time not kill democracy yeah um, you are you you articulated that question Bauke. let's let's turn to you how do you tap populism in america today particularly within the republican party without destroying the democratic system yeah well first thought is this uh and this is where i want to leave our uh viewers and that is the fact that i think we look at america as a human body and democracy is the heart of America and capitalism would be the brains of America. And at this moment in time, you've got enormous pressures uh, from both the left and the right, the same way that you've got pressures from the heart and the brain on, on resources. And we need to remember that at its best, it needs to work together. And touching on one other thing too, also, I, and Al, you know, I really believe in what Al is saying as well, because here in Georgia, you had a gubernatorial candidate back in 2018 uh, questioning the result of the gubernatorial elections uh, results of 2018 here in the state. So it can happen from either parties, and it's extremely important. Yeah, but, it, but in truth, it's happening from the right rather than the left. I mean, it, it, I agree with Al's point that there is a danger as well. The risk, yes. If, if, if the Democrats or certain groups within the Democratic Party lose faith in the system. But at the moment, it's a problem within the Republican rather than the Democratic Party. Yeah. And, and I think what in, it was important about America from infancy till now is the fact that there was always going to be a sort of a body politic that tends to be what I would like to label the quote unquote middle majority. We've heard of the silent majority, we've heard of the moral majority. I think there is a middle majority that does have a, a pragmatic streak to it. And that could actually be more forceful in, 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 in being, uh, how should I say, less partisan, but kind of bring both sides back into the middle 
where it matters, which is basically on the policy side. And well, I hope you're right, Balkivu. Yeah. I'm not convinced, but you seem more optimistic than many. Both of you are brave men to stand up to your own party when it comes to the legitimacy of the election. Um, normally, we have authors on this show. I made a special exception because you both are talking about such important subjects. But to end, perhaps you might, each of you, um, suggest a book or two that people might read uh, to make them wiser or perhaps happier in these rather difficult times as the bombs continue to fall on Kiev and the Republican Party continues to uh, to destroy itself. Uh, Al, perhaps you might start. Well, I'm, I'm recommending a book I just started and haven't even finished yet, uh, but I think the timing of it is just right. And that's John Boehner's book on the House. John Boehner, former Speaker yeah. of the House of Representatives, uh, and it's it's very accessible. It's very conversational, and isn't just nostalgic. It kind of looks back at how did we get to where we are uh, right now. And I heard it was written with his trademark wit, elegance, and bite. So actually, I should try and get him on the show. That's a good suggestion. It's excellent. Um, and uh, finally, uh, uh, Balki, what about you? What what should people be reading? Sure. And as a, as a final comment to Al's, I, I love the former speaker. So uh, definitely have that down on my reading list. So actually, I'm going to give you two books. One I think would help Americans better prepare for a long game. Uh, and that's Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Mm, uh, Sun Tzu wise, was a wise suggestion. Oh. military strategist. And, and I happen to have learned this when I was going through the uh, ROTC program many years ago uh, in my undergrad. Second book is actually uh, The Sympathizer, written by a Vietnamese American. Yeah, I know uh, him actually, yeah. yeah. It, it, uh, it's a historical uh, uh, fiction novel uh, with the background of the, uh, the, end, the last phases of the Vietnam War. Uh, the reason I raise that is because it's actually a great, enjoyable read, but also because it gives a lot of background towards perhaps what would happen here if we don't come to being able to work together across the aisle in compromise. Other countries, uh, you either have a, it, 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 it's basically a, you win or you lose and there's no middle ground and it's a hundred percent or nothing. Right. And so if you lose, then you're going to be losing. Who's the author of that? Um, uh, it's a Vietnamese me. gentleman by the name of uh, Viet, V-I-E-T, uh, Thang, T-H-A-N-H, Last name's Nguyen, N-G-U-Y-E-N. Right. And it's an Atlantic book. What's interesting and perhaps ironic is that Viet is uh, an uncompromising leftist. So it's intriguing that you promote his book as a, as, a, as a bridge, as a piece of moderation, when in fact, I think his politics are certainly to the left of all, or certainly the two of you. Anyway, it's a real honor to have both of you. I appreciate your bravery, willingness to, uh, to at least... Um, to, to, to be open to these kinds of questions. And as, as, as with all my other guests, I'm ending with a simple question. First for you, Al Schmidt. Um, Al, who's in charge? Who's running the world these days? Well, I would, that, that is a big question. And to answer it uh, uh, quickly, ultimately at the end of the day, the people are in charge, whether it's in a democracy or not a democracy. Uh, it's just uh, sometimes um, it's an ugly process, and I'm I'm confident that we'll make the right decision and continue moving toward empowering people and uh, uh, and democracy rather than away from it. 
And Balkivu. I, I find that I have official from um, from from Georgia now in Atlanta. Balki, who's who's in charge? Who runs the world? Who is running I, the world? I'm comforted by the fact that uh, I actually agree with many of the things that Al mentions. But I will say that um, President Zelensky, when he addressed his people, he said, "Each and every one of you is president of this country, right?" And so we have to remember that we are in charge, and and that's how we get out of this. Excellent.